This morning we're going to continue what we began last week and finish the parable of the sower and the soil. Turn in your copy of God's Word with me to Matthew chapter 13. Today's um, transcript was a bit longer than I had intended or hoped, so I may be speaking a little bit more quickly than normal. So bear with me if that's the case. One thing we would do well to not forget as we study the parables of Matthew 13 is the glaring reality of the tepid response to the newly minted kingdom message that Jesus and his disciples were preaching and teaching and how Jesus indicated for his disciples that such a response will continue until the day of judgment. We tend to see this in every generation, a lackadaisical approach to the preaching and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ as if it's an okay thing, it's a nice thing. No, it's the most grand, glorious word that's ever been told to man. And we need to find a way to enliven our hearts every day to the beauty of Christ and His gospel message that set us free. Amen? A tepid response is no response indeed. In the opening parable Matthew chose to lead with, it's made painfully clear that many will not receive the kingdom message. Their interest in Jesus was not for what he was teaching, but it was for the free health care that he was providing. And honestly, if you think about it, who can blame them? I mean, uh, one of the greatest and most natural, you might say, instincts of anybody who's unhealthy is to find a remedy for that which is ailing them, and Jesus was for them such a remedy. And so as the healer, they followed him, the crowds followed him, and he preached the gospel, the kingdom of the gospel, and he healed, and the crowds continued to follow them and got larger, but one thing that Jesus made observation was was that the followers were not becoming disciples. They appreciated the health care. And so as we see in the parable today, uh, there will be an ample of people who have, over the course of human history, you will find, um, as then, so now, that principle oftentimes is the case. Uh, there will be individuals by their outward actions and perhaps even words, um, perhaps seem to indicate a willingness or a, a tepid desire, if you will, to follow Jesus, who ultimately turn out to be, might I say, counterfeits. Their interest in Jesus was for the accoutrements that he was providing, and not just for him, that he was the long-awaited Messiah. In our culture today, we sometimes refer to that as nominal Christianity, in name only. These are the individuals who can always and almost always are able to answer almost every Sunday school question when presented and thus can display even forms of godliness. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, um, there will be those holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. 
Paul says, avoid such men as these. Seems a bit harsh in our modern culture and society in which we live, and we think about how we are to go about managing relationships. We don't oftentimes think of such harsh language as this. Paul also went on two verses later in verse 7, and he says of these individuals, they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They may go to a multitude of Bible studies Sunday almost every morning, etc., say the amen. They can throw their hand in the pile and say the Lord's Prayer uh, by rote memory. Uh, but at the end of the day, are they following Jesus? Is he their treasure or their passion? Are they passionate about being used for God and his purposes this side of heaven? And how we know that is not by what they say, but by what they do. And it's for this reason that we all the more need to pay close attention and I might say special attention to what Jesus is teaching us in the parable of the sower and the soils. He refers to it as a mystery. So if we ever find ourselves in a difficult conversation with people like this, those who are always learning but never coming seemingly to the knowledge of the truth, people holding a form of godliness, though their actions of their life show that they've denied its power. Uh, we need to heed the words of the Apostle Paul and avoid such individuals instead of endlessly wrangling over words. I think Jesus gave us a pretty good model of how to manage evangelistic relational situations when he sent his disciples out in Matthew chapter 10 and he just said, listen, if they don't receive you, does the uh, the, uh, the dust off your feet and move on to the next town, the next city, to the next person, the next people. If you continually sit around and just wrangle over words with individuals over how do you know if a person's saved? Is it just because they say they're saved? Well, they say they're saved, and the very fact that they say they're saved, isn't that enough evidence of life that God has given them life in this parable is a parable that oftentimes gets used to demonstrate that because one of the sprigs in this parable sprouts up quickly, and so therein you see life. So how are we to understand what Jesus is making of this parable? And that's why we are here this morning to study God's Word and to learn the, the, these truths that Jesus was giving His disciples then and now. So this was the outline that we looked at last week when we got started. Uh, the setting, verses 1 through 3a, then the, just the teaching of the parable itself from verse 3b all the way through verse 9. Then there was an interaction that Jesus has with his disciples in verses 10 through 17 when they question him as to why he's now teaching in parables. And then he gives from verses 18 through 23 the actual meaning of the parable. And last week, you remember, this is what we looked at specifically last week was this third point in the outline. We looked last week at the, uh, the interaction that Jesus had with his disciples. So today, we're going to finish by looking at parts 1, 2, and 4, and then combine that together with what we looked at last week and have an understanding of this parable of the soil and of the sower. Look again with me. We briefly looked at the setting last week, but look again with me at the setting that we have here in verses 1 through 3. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. So contextually, what do we see here? Well, it connects us and it directs us specifically back to the very end of chapter 12 where Jesus had been following 
been followed by a crowd into a house, and we kind of refer to that perhaps as a time when he was in his house ministry. Uh, he, he, the house became so jam-packed with people looking for health care that his own mother and brothers, when they showed up to the house and, tr- and sought to get inside the house to have conversation with him, they were unable to get into the house. And so, um, you know, you remember the conversation. Uh, they said, came to him, they said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers is out, are outside and they're looking to have conversation with you. And he said to them, in essence, well, who are my, my mother and my brother? In, in essence, who is truly my family? And he says, it's these. And he was probably making reference to his disciples, the 12 that were with him, and perhaps some of the others that were in the larger group of the 70. And he made a reference there to the fact that God's family, God's spiritual connection that people have, is um, true family. Yes, you have mothers, and yes, we have brothers. We have biological family, but the tightest family that it seems that Jesus was indicating there was that of spiritual family. And then it says right here, that day, notice here in verse 1, Jesus went out of the house, right? So he was there having a time of house ministry, probably Again, teaching and healing as he had been doing. And Jesus went out of the house, and we see that he went and he sat by the sea. And again, verse 2, large crowds, excuse me, gathered to him. And so he got into a boat, he sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. Now, something that I wanted to point out briefly here that was, I think, a, a good observation for us to make is right here in verse 1 where it says, that day Jesus went out of the house, went out of the house, and large crowds gathered to him, and he sat down in the boat. We're going to see this theme again with his disciples, this idea of going out. He sent them out. And I think it's a good indication, uh, even for us today, that like when we're going to see here in just a, a bit when we get to Matthew chapter 10, there's this idea of being sent out that God's people, God's messengers go out and we're going out and we're running into crowds. Maybe not crowds like in this context with Jesus, but we're going out. I think of when the church gathers on Sunday, the church is gathered, but when we finish, we go out and we go out into the world and we find ourselves with people Maybe not in this context. Some of us might like to find ourselves on the beach, right, at Florida this next weekend or something. But nonetheless, um, it's, it's important for us to kind of think of ourselves as these kinds of evangelists that need to be mindful when we go out places <clears throat> that we are there to be doing the bidding of Christ. Now, notice the, the actual preaching that Jesus gets into with the parable. And he spoke to them many things in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And this is where I'm, again, making this connection. The sower did what? The sower went out. The sower went out to sow. So when sowers go out, the action that sowers go out to accomplish is a sowing. And we know from the parable that what they're sowing is a seed. And we know that in the context of this parable, when we get to the end, the sowing of the seed is the sowing of the gospel. So again, I think it's utterly important to realize that we as believers, if we're going to be those claiming to be truly followers of Jesus Christ, we need to see ourselves in this parable as sowers. 
were the ones who were the sowing of the seed. And behold, the sower went out to do what? To sow. The, the, the sowers, they go out to sow. And so in Matthew 9 and Matthew 10 and in Matthew 13, we see this same principle. And I wanted to just highlight it a little bit more. We saw it with Jesus. He went out of the house. Now his disciples, these sowers in this, in this parable, they go out in Matthew 9. And I, this is why I think it's so right to understand that this parable is so closely tied to the ministry that Jesus has had there in, in the larger region of Galilee and the disciples and their ministry in Galilee. It's they went out. They went out as sowers sowing seed. And I think the parable of Matthew 13 is indicative of that very ministry itself. And we see this all the way back in Matthew 9. He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to do what? To send out workers into the harvest. The sending out, a going out. Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. Matthew 13, 3, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And that's our passage this morning. Sowers, God's people, get sent out. And the action that they get sent out to do is to sow. And where are they sowing? In a harvest. In a harvest of souls. Because people need the Lord. People need the gospel. Again, from last week, we saw this quote from Douglas O'Connell in his Preaching of the Word series. He said, The gospel has been scattered like seed as Jesus and his disciples traveled throughout the region of Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And they did that, right? As they were going out, this is what they were doing. Jesus sent them out in chapter 10, and he said, go out and preach, and teach the gospel. So they're, they're going about, and they're spreading seed freely. Then the, he says, then the parable of the sower is perfectly positioned in Matthew's gospel to explain why then only a few people respond and enter, while many others do not. So I was thinking about this in terms of its application for us today as sowers who are sent out and the action that we are sent out to do is to sow. Number one is, are you sowing? I mean, it's just, it's, it's literally just that simple. Sowers are sent out to sow. When we leave the church gathered on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day, and we go out, do you sow? Does it cross our minds that we need to be sowers? Sowers get sent out to sow, and they go out to sow the seed. Christ's people understand the Great Commission. There's just one commission. Go make disciples. We need to have the courage, not have a fear of men, but have courage to be active sowers. So by way of application, and this is what you've heard me say on many other occasions that the church when gathered on the Lord's day is not a time for soft evangelism. I mean, everything that I've just got finished saying, how, how's that going to land on an unbeliever that sits in a service like this on the Lord's day? It's not that there couldn't be unbelievers here. There may be someone here this morning who's an unbeliever. But the encouragement that comes from the Word of God is for God's people to do what? To be encouraged. Why? Because when we get out there, sometimes we have a fear of men and we don't sow. We gather, and if we're not careful, we've, we can become uh, keepers of aquariums. We've got to be careful that we go out and become fishers of men. Amen? That's, this is one of the 
the beautiful things of the Word of God. It, it allows us to see ourselves in it, and then it reflects back who we see as with regard to the Scriptures and God's Word, and then it lets us know that we have change that oftentimes needs to be made. And that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. That's what the Word of God is for. So, Sunday mornings is for the gathering of the church to be encouraged for this kind of edification. Brothers and sisters, you need to view yourself as a sower who gets sent out to sow, just like the disciples of old were called to do. Be a sower. Let's keep looking at verse 3 now. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. The many things is in essence what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 13. But it's going to be pared down. The many things are these parables that we see in Matthew 13. We see seven of them. I have a feeling that there's probably more than seven of them. Uh, we're going to get seven of them. And of these seven in particular, Jesus says that he's going to be teaching us something with regard to the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so that's something that we, as they, needed to know then, we need to know now. In verse 4, and notice, and as he sowed. So you get sent out to sow as he sowed, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Okay, so we see the, the um, intended purpose was to sow, and we see the action. God's people become active. So a simple question would be, is it possible to be saved and have this Holy Spirit abide in us and never be sowers of the seed? You see, these are some of the really difficult questions that we run into when we study the Word of God and how we understand so great a salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works alone, to the glory of God alone. We do nothing to enter into such a glorious salvation. It's all of God's mercy and it's all of grace. But those whom God saves, he puts a deposit in them of his Holy Spirit that enlivens them to do something, right? And this is what we need to understand about the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, that sowers sow and they are active sowers. And we see this, some seed fell beside the road. And the thing that I love about a statement like this, some of the seed fell beside the road. Others fell by rocky places. What do we see here? We see the indiscriminate preaching of the gospel to whosoever will come. They're just freely scattering the seed of the gospel everywhere they go. Some of it, some of it fell on the hardened soil of the road. Some of it fell in rocky places. Some of it fell amongst thorns, okay? But we see that they're not being... Um, isolated, like, hey, these, these people look like us, let's throw the seed to them. As they're going out in life, which is what the Great Commission says, is as they were going, making disciples, we are to be scattering the seed as broadly and indiscriminately as we can everywhere we go. We know not who God will save through the preaching, the sowing of the word, and the watering of the word, right? We know not who that's going to be. But God does, and we see here the activity. As they sowed, they sowed very indiscriminately, which is exactly what we're called to do in fulfilling the Great Commission. So one of the applications I think that's important for us to think about is 
the reality of the discouragement that we might sometimes find ourselves having when we sow the seed. If you go out and you're sowing as you sow, and you sow seed, but you don't see people responding favorably. Do you think the disciples, when Jesus sent out the twelve, do you think that they perhaps on occasion were discouraged as they continually went from, from village to town, from village to town, and they were spreading? And the only thing that people really seemed interested in was the miraculous powers that Jesus had. Not interested in your message. As a matter of fact, our scribes and Pharisees are saying that, that he's actually from Satan. But we don't care who or where he came from. We just want the healing. Whether it's from the power of Beelzebub, the power of God, we don't care. We're just here for the health care. How discouraging might that have been for them to see that as they preached the gospel of the kingdom on many occasions so indiscriminately, they saw so few people responding to that message. It's important for us to, to realize, brothers and sisters, that, that God causes the growth. It's not your responsibility. We can only take responsibility for the things that God has called us to be responsible for. And this is why we need to remember that we are what? We're sowers and we have seed and we're called to sow. We cannot cause spiritual growth. God has to do that. Amen? We, we have to remember that. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therein is our responsibility. Look again at verse 4. And as he sowed, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Verse 7, others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then in verse 9, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, just at face value, as we read this, um, I'm not someone of a agricultural background. I've never been involved in tilling ground and planting seed and having it pray for rain or watering it and watching... Um, the earth produce life from seeds. That's not something that um, I've ever done in my life. I simply uh, would go to Walmart, to the section for veggies, and I would get my veggies there, right? But does it not seem at just first blush that everything that has been said here in a general sense seems very reasonable? Does it not? I mean, it's just, it's just very reasonable. It's just kind of logical. So if some seed were to fall beside a road and then birds came and ate them up, you, you're not going to expect that that seed's going to yield a crop, right? You, you're just not going to. I mean, just in a very general, straightforward sense, that's not something that you're going to think is going to happen. You know, these birds are just kind of flying, doing a flyover. They see on top of the hard dirt the seeds, and so they just kind of come in and do a landing, and they just eat the seeds up. You wouldn't expect that that's, that seed's going to really produce anything at all. I mean, it's just a very obvious statement, a very general observation. And we see that again as we go throughout this parable, that same very basic principle 
I mean, some other seed fell on rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depths of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched because they had no root, they withered away. Again, if you can kind of envision that, seed falling in rocky places, it's got very shallow soil. Um, are any of you surprised at all that, that this little sprig that sprouted from the very shallow soil that when the sun came up, maybe on the first, second, third day, but eventually the sun scorched that little sprig that started to come out from that very shallow soil. Is anybody surprised at all that that little sprig did not end up yielding a harvest? We're not surprised by that, are we? Just makes sense, right? Now, someone might say, well, if that little sprig had been kind of dug up from that shallow soil and taken over into some good soil and planted within the good soil, then the little bit of roots that started to grow and the little sprig, the little green part that started to come up, perhaps then that little sprig could have produced some fruit, right? And so we kind of get into looking at this parable and start trying to maybe overanalyze every little aspect of this in ways that become spiritually unhealthy with regard to its meaning that Jesus gets to at the end of this parable. At face value, no one here, I believe, is surprised that the little sprig that sprouted up, the sun came out and scorched it, it's not going to yield any fruit, right? It's just the obvious understanding of the text. And then the last one. Others fell among thorns, and thorns came up and choked them out. Now, thorns here is, the, is just really the idea of a thorny plant. I mean, that's, that's in essence what we're talking about. We're not just talking about thorns like laying on the ground. These are the have you ever had a, a plant, have you ever had property that you've, that, have you seen how these plants can just overtake everything? I mean, if you don't intentionally go out and kill these kinds of thorny plants or thistle or briar, they will consume and overtake everything, right? Um, and so, again, it's when we look at this in a very straightforward way and we realize that this was the same kind of um, thorny bushy plant that even oh Abraham and God cursed the earth cursed is the ground because of you thanks a lot parents in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles these are these um, thorny plants thistles briar that came as a result of the curse that's going to come from the ground and Abraham's going to have to work by the sweat of his brow now to control such bushes in order to harvest from plants of the field and have something to eat. Again, no one is surprised that this seed does not yield a harvest. And then the, the fourth interaction that we see of the sower, the seed, and the soil there in verse 8, it says, and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And again, it's no one, when we read this at, at face value, no one is surprised to think that, okay, yeah, sure, a seed, it falls in good soil, and it's going to what? It's going to yield a crop. Some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Not every seed that lands in good soil is going to produce the, the exact same amount of, of produce. I mean, I think, again, that's just kind of an obvious and general observation that we would be made of any kind of uh, sowing and reaping kind of a situation. So again, if I were to ask you about 
this interaction here, would you be surprised that this seed that was sown in good soil yielded some kind of a crop, whether it was 160 or 30? And I think the obvious answer, we would be, no, we're not surprised by that at all, right? It's very simple. It's very straightforward. And this, then Jesus says, okay, well, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. Seems pretty straightforward. Jesus is kind of simply saying that there's going to be some seed that's going to fall in some bad places, and because it fell in some bad places, whether it's the hard road, the, the rocky places, not much soil, thorns and briar, it's just that seed's just not going to take root, and it's not going to yield a crop. But some of it, as you go about spreading the seed, as you're just indiscriminately spreading the seed, some of it's going to land on some good soil, and there's going to be, within the spreading of that seed in good soil, there's going to be that seed that will produce a crop. It's, it's literally that easy. So how could that somehow be mysterious in terms of teaching mysterious things about the kingdom of heaven? Last week, remember last week's message, if you were here last week, Jesus kind of has taken a shift in the way he's been teaching the crowds. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is a typical way that Jesus would preach and teach to the crowds. We call that the Sermon on the Mount. Now he's made a shift. He started teaching in parables. And so we saw last week the, um, the disciples were like, why, why are you doing this? Why are you teaching in parables? And then Jesus gave them an, an explanation. He says, well, for you it's been granted to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it hasn't been granted. Which again is a kind of a perplexing reality because we tend to think that, well, we just need to sow indiscriminately, and that is true. Those concepts are not mutually exclusive. And that's one of the beauties that Jesus is teaching his disciples about the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. We sow, God causes growth and to not get confused in those two. Be active and be engaged. Be sowers who go out, who actually sow, and then we just have to let God be God. But when Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear, I think, in essence, what we need to have a, um, how we would interpret this is he's saying, if you can understand what I'm, uh, if you can understand this parable, then let the person who has the ability to understand it, understand it. And we see in the way that Jesus immediately has interaction with his disciples, they didn't understand it. Because he has a conversation with them, and then he has to explain the parable to them. Which lets us know something. It lets us know that what Jesus is talking about here isn't just a very general, simple, basic understanding of agriculture. There's spiritual meaning to this that has application to human hearts and lives. And there's a depth to that that what Jesus is driving at and wants these people to under his disciples to understand. In MacArthur's commentary on this point, he says only those who accept the king can understand the king and profit from his teaching and lordship. To all others, his teaching is meaningless riddles. Which in the big scope of things, isn't that true? If the gospel is foolishness to a perishing world, and Paul says that it is in Corinthians 1, then the preaching of the gospel, the spreading of seed, 
though they can hear and understand the words, it's not an, an inability to understand words. It's an inability to see the true meaning behind those words that are planted, that seed that is planted. And so as we saw last week, Jesus made it clear to his disciples that the reason he is now speaking in parables is for the purpose of granting them a greater understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven while at the same time doing the exact opposite to those of the crowds that continue to follow after him, who, after all, have rejected his claims of being God's Messiah. And so the little that they have had, he said last week, even that will be taken away from them, which is exactly what this parable does. It's a taking away from them the straightforward teaching like the Sermon on the Mount provided for them. Even that has been taken away from them, and now I speak to them in parables. And then he quoted Isaiah. This is a fulfillment of what Isaiah said when Isaiah prophesied, they would have eyes to see but see not. They would have ears to hear but hear not down to this very day. That's what Jesus said to his disciples with regard to why he's now teaching them in parables. Let's just read that section by way of reconnecting ourselves with what we looked at last week, and then we'll move past it. I'm not going to teach anything here. I'm just going to read what we looked at last week. In verse 10, And his disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, this is the reason I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not understand. Nor do they, do they hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. Which says, quote, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus in that section is informing his disciples that the labor of the sower and the yield of the soil both find their hope in the granting of a sovereign and merciful God. If you missed that message, you can go online and hear it. Brings us to the last portion of the teaching of this parable today, and this is where Jesus then goes in and gives specific explanation and an understanding of what he is saying. Notice verse 18. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one whom seed was sown on rocky places this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. 
Now, one of the things that we see so far is very just simple observation is when Jesus gets into explaining uh, the parable, we see things like this, and the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky place, this is the man. So we're not talking about agriculture here. We're talking about humans. We're talking about human hearts. And we're talking about the spreading of this gospel seed. And so he's bringing this now from an agrarian illustration into a spiritual reality and how it impacts people's lives. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Doesn't that sound good? Isn't that what we want? We want people to immediately receive with joy, right? Well, no, not really. We want them to receive it with joy that's followed by genuine repentant faith. And then as a result of genuine repentant faith, they then do what Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, that they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by grace. Christ alone, apart from works, so that no man could boast. But in 2.10, he says that they were saved unto good works. And so it has to land in a soil that's ready to receive so that the seed can grow and can yield a crop. The distinguishing point between those who perhaps receive it immediately and those who receive it and yield a crop is that the sprig is not a sign of genuine spiritual life. And Jesus is making that abundantly clear in a very simple way, in a parable such as this. Yet he has no firm root. You see, it looks good, right? Immediately receives, yes, Jesus, but it has no firm root in himself, but is only it's temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So in the case here of the good soil, that yielded a crop, some 100, some 60, some 30-fold. These are those whom God granted access to seeing and understanding Jesus' teaching. That's the only connection that we can obviously make between the, the parable and Jesus' explanation of the parable. God had granted some to see, and those who he granted to see, more was given, and those who weren't granted to see, even what they had was taken away. And so these who are granted to see the good soil are those who yield crops. The yielding of the crop, again, 160, 30. To those individuals, Jesus said, more would be given. Specifically, a deeper and richer understanding of how the kingdom of God grows would be given to them. And their fruit bearing would probably yield even more fruit as they continue to walk more closely with Jesus. Because as he said, what did he say? He who has been given more shall be given to them. This is why typically when you see a person come to faith early on, they receive the word, they're good soil, God grants a saving faith to them, and they start getting discipled. And they're very excited. They have lots of energy, but they just don't have much knowledge. And so 
you teach them all that Christ has commanded them. And as they are growing and, and maturating in their faith and they're sharing the gospel, their, their productivity, their, their yielding of crops over the course of the next five years of their life and then the next 15 years of their life, there's an increase because he who has more shall be given to them. But even those who were who had something initially, what they had was taken away. So you see a progressive concept in with this 160 and 30. And the good news is, is you don't know at any particular time where you may be on that spectrum. Have you ever tried to be a fruit checker in somebody else's life? Man, I'm just watching somebody's life right now. I just don't see me producing a lot of fruit. Last year, but, but and so we can get utterly confused when we become the fruit inspectors in other people's lives, right? It's difficult. It becomes complex. It can lead to some bad theological statements sometimes. You need to watch a man's life over the course of a period of time, not just a quick snapshot. To make an observation is, is this man, is this woman walking with the Lord? Not just the saying of the thing, but the doing of the thing. The saying is the easy, the doing's the hard. But the doing, what do sowers do? Sowers go out and they do what? They sow. Jesus said one of the first things he said in Matthew chapter 4 of when he started drawing disciples to himself, what did he say? Come, follow me, and I will make you become what? Fishers of men. Sowers are, in essence, that. They're fishers of men. It's, it's all connected. Jesus saves people, and he says, if you're going to follow me, that I will know you're following me to the degree that I see you growing and becoming a fisher of men. I will make you become fishers of men. This is what Jesus does with his disciples. He changes their heart. He changes their mind. They get on board with his plan, not their plan. Their plan was going somewhere else. His plan is to make them become fishers of men and tent makers to support themselves along the way on that journey. Fishers of men are people who understand that they are sowers. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into the harvest. End of chapter 9 and chapter 10, Jesus sent them out as sowers into the harvest. Go, preach, teach. And as you do, say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Spread that gospel seed indiscriminately, as broadly as you can. To everyone. Those individuals, those lives will be bearing, yielding a crop. Some hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. These are the soils where the granting of saving, repentant faith by God is obviously seen. And of those soils that were not granted saving, repentant faith in Jesus, what did we see there in verse 19? Well, in verse 19, we saw a statement, this statement, that the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, right? Hear then the parable of the sower when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Now, it's important here to understand that, that God's not granting understanding 
and the evil one snatching away the seed sown, these are not mutually exclusive realities. Both are true. In other words, both of these are happening at the same time just as Jesus teaches here. And the reason why this is important for us to understand is so that we don't wrongly turn around and blame Satan as the cause or reason why someone chooses not to have repentant, saving faith in Jesus. Only God causes the growth, and Satan is not omniscient. Meaning, Satan does not know whom God's elect are, and as such is actively working by every means possible to snatch away the sowing of the gospel any and every time it is faithfully sown, wherever it's sown, every time. Satan knows not who God's elect are. He is not omniscient. And his snatching away seed is just the activity of what the evil one does. It's what he does. Yet if the individuals on whom the seed is sown by the sower, if it's going to produce a crop, God Almighty has to be involved in the process and grant an understanding to that human heart and soul and mind and eyes. To have eyes to see and ears to hear and an understanding so they will have repentant, saving faith and start following after Jesus. These things are not mutually exclusive. Satan does not prevent people from becoming saved. But it says he snatches away the seed. Yes, he does. He brings doubt. He brings confusion. Did God really say, just Genesis 3, right? Did God really say this? Did God say that? Uh, sowing doubt and confusion everywhere the seed is ever sown. That's what Satan's business is about. So how can we Take away some application on this. Listen, don't grow weary in doing good. Keep sowing the gospel seed indiscriminately to anyone and everyone you can. And this one, ready? Find joy in the planting and the watering of the seed. Find your joy in the planting and the watering of the seed. Don't get discouraged when people you share the gospel with don't immediately get saved. We have to remember that there are spiritual forces at work behind every life scene that we are encountered with. Especially when we are in the process of sowing, being sowers who sow seed actively. And that growth is something we have no control over whatsoever. We have no control over the growth. Satan has no control over the growth. Only God. And I think if we can find, if we can be Faithful, happy sowers of the seed of the gospel and spread it everywhere we go as Jesus and his disciples were doing. We can be happy sowers. We've got to let God be God. Now, I think it's also important that we say a little something about the seed that fell on the rocky places. Remember that little sprig? All the way back in verses 5 and 6. This becomes, a, this becomes somewhat of a contentious issue in the conversation of trying to have a clear understanding of what Jesus was saying with regard to God's granting or God's not granting and who's saved, who's, who's actually saved and who's not saved in this parable, et cetera, et cetera. 
this becomes a little bit of a, of a messy issue. So in verses 5 and 6, I think something here needs to be stated yet more clearly. In verse 5, it says, Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And again, we get sometimes confused over this springing up. They sprang up. And in the springing up, we might think, or some might say, there's proof of life. And as such, this person has experienced saving life that came as a result of the planting of the seed. Has anybody ever had this conversation with anybody? Probably so. And since we know once saved, always saved, uh, we have to then indicate that this person is genuinely saved. And though this person's faith may languish and their faith may wither away, since you're once saved, always saved, there's, the reality is, is that you actually don't have to bear fruit in order to demonstrate that you're a child of God. Has anybody ever run into this kind of doctrine with regard to the parable of the sower and the seed and the soil, but also just in general discourse with brothers and sisters as well? I think that we probably, at some point in time, we all have. So is it necessary to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? To demonstrate that God has granted a genuine, repentant, saving faith who has opened eyes to see, who has opened ears to hear, and bids a man come and die. Is that necessary or is that not necessary? And I think one of the things that, that is in the mystery of the preaching of the gospel that Jesus is enlightening the eyes of his disciples then and the eyes of us as his disciples today is to let us know that the sprig, though it sprang up and immediately seemed responsive to the preaching of the gospel, as I said earlier, genuine spiritual life is not found in the sprig. In the small little shoot that comes up and sprouts off a couple of little green leaves, it has probably a few little roots on it, we strain too hard after the details in parables like that. And we say, see, if it has some roots and it had a little green life to it and it had some leaves, obviously that's spiritual life. And Jesus is clearly the most basic understanding is that, no, he's not saying that. And the distinction that he's making is that how you determine who genuinely has actual spiritual life is in the yielding of the crop. Some 100, some 60, some 30. Therein seems to be one of the deep mysteries that God wants his disciples to understand. And why would that be so? Why would that be important for us to have an understanding of that? I'm going to let you think about it here for a second. Get your minds churning on a, on, in a particular direction, right? It's important for us to have an, a, a clear understanding of the mysteries of the gospel that we serve a big God. God didn't just create the, the heavens and the earth, wind things up and move off and is now disinterested in what's happening on earth. The teaching that Jesus gives us in the parable of the, the sower, the soil, and the seed helps us understand so many of the amazing things that the apostles teach in the epistles. 
when they say things like, from before the foundations of the world, we were predestined and elected in God. It gives us an understanding that God is the one who's either doing the granting, remember last week, did I? Either the granting or the non-granting for people to have an understanding or not have an understanding. And now that brings us to a very deep philosophical issue, right? It potentially brings us in conflict with um, who we understand God to be. Why would God not just grant everybody saving faith? Wouldn't that be a good thing? Yes, it would be a good thing. And God desires that what? None should perish, but all would come to saving faith, right? And that's a great thing. The, the uh, desiring, willing of God, the love of God. But God's decreative will, what he has decreed and what he has desired, again, they're not mutually exclusive. He can desire one thing, but not have decreed another thing. And in this parable, we see that God is the determining factor as to the soils and hearts and seeds planted and who's producing and yielding a crop or who's just a little sprig, but it withers away and dies or it gets choked out by the thorns or it's on a rocky place and the birds just eat it up and it moves on. This is teaching us something very profound about who our God is. And so my encouragement and our application, I think, for a, for such a deep thought as that would be that we would push in more to an understanding of who God is, not push away. Perhaps this might be one of the first times you've heard a teaching on the idea of election that God chooses, that God grants some and he doesn't grant others. It's a very deep well of theology indeed. I can remember the first time I heard teaching about God and his sovereignty and election and he grants some and he doesn't grant others. And my first and my first initial initial response to that was simply that's not fair. I need a God that's fair. And through the course of discipleship, I had somebody kindly say to me, Well, who are you, old man, to speak back to God and to tell God how he should do things? Did you read the book of Job? Where, where were you whenever I laid out the lines of the creations of the heavens and earth? So it helps, thinking deeply about this, helps us understand that we are on earth and our God is in the heavens and that he does whatsoever he pleases. We serve a really big, sovereign God. And Jesus lets us know this. Why? Because let me tell you, just like we saw with the disciples, same is true today. Doing the work of ministry, being fishers for men, is hard work. You have to have an intentional and purposed plan and philosophy of life to be actively engaged in doing this labor all the days of your life. And what you're going to discover, like they discovered, is that most people are not going to be interested. And so you keep spreading the seed. You keep spreading the seed. You scatter it out there as indiscriminately as you can. You say, come one, come all. And you pray. But you leave the, the, you leave the balance in God's hands. Amen? This is one of the most simple and basic things that Jesus teaches us with regard to the kingdom of heaven. God causes the growth. Some 100, some 60, some 30. And it was Jesus' half-brother James that in, on many verses in his little epistle mirrors some of these 
teachings in his writings. Prove yourselves doers of the word. Be a fisher of men, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not an actual doer, 100, 60, 30, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror and once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. And what kind of person was he? He's a person in need of change. It's easy to forget that. God's word helps us see that. And then in chapter 2, verses 14, 17, 20, 24, and 26, James says things like this, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Some hundred, some sixty, some thirty. Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Dead faith doesn't save anybody. But if you're willing to recognize it, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. And then he says in 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That one takes more explanation, which I don't have right now, but just trust me. Uh, this, is, this is the easy of the saying of the thing. Oh, I have faith. I have faith. I have faith. Do you believe in Jesus? I believe in Jesus. You know all the Sunday school answers. Denying the power thereof. Faith works, and this is how you see that, by watching a person's life. If you watch a person's life and you don't see that they love the Lord Jesus Christ more than themselves and their riches and their own plan, then you can know that if they're saying it, it's just the saying of the thing. 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is a dead faith. It's not a saving faith. So in many epistles, this is just James. If we had time, we could go through all of Paul's epistles, the 13 epistles of Paul, and that would be a whole other sermon in and of itself, right? But the parable of the sower, the seed, and the soil sheds light on the beautiful reality that God's responsible for genuine, repentant, saving faith. And when once saved, always saved, and there will be a harvest yielded. Some 100, some 60, some 30. So the question is this morning, brothers and sisters, is where are you?